Hello and welcome to Just a Bite. This is Jory. Today I'm joined on the podcast by Guiche Bervejillo, State Policy Fellow with Policy Matters Ohio. Originally from Uruguay, Guiche has a PhD in Economic Geography and Bachelor's in Economics from The Ohio State University, as well as a Master's in Geography at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. He has studied antitrust economics, trade between China and Latin America, the geopolitics of global soy markets, and more. Guiche also has a long-standing commitment to community organizing in Ohio and professional experience in Washington, D.C. He was a founding member, organizer, and researcher for the Ohio Student Association. And in Washington, D.C., Guiche was an economic policy intern at the Center for American Progress and an economic research analyst at the Antitrust Division of the U.S. Department of Justice. He was generous enough to spend some time talking with us about what's truly going on economically beneath the buzzwords we're all hearing and the inflationary pinch we're all feeling. I learned a lot from our conversation, and I'm grateful to bring Guiche's expertise to you in this episode. Guiche, thanks so much for being here with us today on our podcast. I'm really excited to learn from your expertise. Um, You have such an incredible background in a lot of the ways in which our world as food security and poverty advocates overlap with a lot of what we're seeing in headlines today. Uh, You know, we're hearing a lot of talk about inflation and what should we do about it and how is it impacting people and what policy choices are playing into that. So we try our best to understand that, wrap our heads around it, but it's so great to have someone like you here to share a little bit more of a deep dive with our listeners. So thank you. So why don't we just... Oh, great, great. Well, why don't we just start with a sort of economics 101 refresher if you don't mind you know like i said we're all hearing so much about interest rates supply and demand the stock market you know what is really going on right now in the in the economy for people who have you know have a few years since their like high school econ class sure so uh you know inflation can generally be understood to be a um you know a generalized increase in prices so uh the government keeps Keeps tags, keeps track of a, of a of a basket of goods that most people buy on a regular basis, and uh, when you see uh, people talking about inflation, what it means is that those that basket of goods, you know, which is a, a certain amount of gas, a certain amount of food, a certain amount of basic items like that, housing, etc. Um, when you see people talking about inflation, it means that that basket of goods has increased in price relative to what it was before. Um, so, you know, if you want to go back to Econ 101, there's there's a couple different things we could, you know, you'd probably have to talk about, you know, supply and demand. If there's not enough of those goods, then sure, the prices of, of those goods will probably increase be, because there's not enough supply. If there is uh, too many people who want those things, then also uh, prices are likely to increase because there's too much demand. Um, there's also another way of seeing it, which has to do with uh, focusing in on the on the, not necessarily the, the the goods themselves, but the the value of money. So another way of seeing this is to say, if the value of your money decreases, then it's harder for you to buy that basket of goods. So that's another way of understanding inflation is the, the fluctuation of of the value of money. So uh, it's the basket of goods, the basket you know whatever every one of us buys on a regular basis. It's whether there's 
what the supply and the demand for those goods are, but it also has to do with the supply of money, which affects the value of money. Um, all that is potentially more technical than it sounds, <laughs> but some of it is is pretty intuitive. But uh, unfortunately, there's there's a lot of um, kind of mystification about it all because it's you know we treat it as if it was uh, only only the uh, the field of an economist uh, to understand. So definitely could go deeper into that if you want. Yeah, I mean, we I think it's interesting many years ago in the in the hunger relief world, um, at least from the perspective of like our federal government, we got away from using the term hunger and went toward using a term of food security or food insecurity, right? Or you hear food hardship. Um, and I think these terms are inherently economic. And when we talk more and more um, on this podcast and in our advocacy work about how food security, yes, is the ability to afford enough food to feed yourself and your family. It's also the ability to access that food. So there's other economic drivers and environmental drivers that play into your food security or lack thereof, but also the security of our food supply long-term. Um, when we see you know, global, local, regional, national uh, uh, circumstances playing into the solvency and security of a food supply, of the ability to transport that food supply, um, to safely shop for it, um, to without exposing yourself to a virus, without exposing yourself to gun violence, whatever that may be. There are so many factors going into that. So it's interesting because talking with you kind of put that puts that into an almost an economic perspective, which we're still kind of developing those muscles and talking about ourselves. But I, I, I know I hear a lot about, you know, the suggestion that this is a, an American problem right now that I think a lot of people who don't pay a, attention maybe to um, how the situation that we're feeling here as Americans is very similar to many people across the world, given our shared experience of COVID, given our shared connection and reliance on you know, Eastern European sources for food and fertilizer, for example, during an international war, just as a couple of examples, of course, climate change also being a major factor that we're all coping with. So I say all that to say, this isn't just happening here, right? This is happening globally. Right. So no, it's, it's very important that you bring up the question of the stability of the food supply, because um, one of the things that people... Um, forget when in these kinds of discussions is that um, there is you know the 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 economy the, the the food the food sector whatever sector we're talking about the oil sector um, you know these are businesses and and institutions and you know um, relations economic relationships that have been around for decades and um, there's a history to why we are where we are and how it's affected our current situation. So, um, but when you bring up the the international uh, the international aspects of the, it, it's actually a really useful a really useful uh, element to consider when you're uh, when you're hearing these discussions about inflation because um, um, because we can get an idea of 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 uh, 
how these things aren't localized and yet how it's not globalized fully. So, for example, um, inflation in the U.S. Is, is probably the highest in the world, or at least, no, actually, Turkey has really high inflation right now. But um, the U.S. has very high inflation, and uh, the EU and the U.K. are pretty close, but they're also following. Um, there's also some uh, Western Hemisphere countries, like in South America, that are experiencing pretty significant inflation. But um, but actually, there are countries that aren't experiencing the same kind of inflation. China, for one, is experiencing about a 2, 2.1% inflation rate, which is, you know, a quarter of what we're experiencing here. And um, and then uh, there's also some Southeast Asian countries, Indonesia, around that area, that uh, don't have quite as high of an inflation rate. So the reason I bring that up is because I think that it's important to remember that there's a lot that, um, a lot that you know, social and political institutions can do to... Uh, to ensure certain stability and you know there's trade-offs of course there's certain things that we don't necessarily um, aspire to do uh, with our society but there are when people talk about when when you know when politicians talk about doing everything possible to uh, address inflation it's it's a little bit disingenuous because they say that but then they tie their hands to certain market um, certain market uh, signals and certain kind of actions by the Fed and all this kind of stuff. So um, it's important to know that this is a globalized, a globalized relation, a globalized situation, so that you know that uh, it's not one thing that specifically was done in the U.S. that led to all this. But it's also important to know that it's not uh, it's not felt the same way across the, across the globe, and that has to do a lot with the circumstances of each one of these mm-hmm. uh, specific regions or countries and mm-hmm. so on. Yeah, so, and that's really helpful the, that while it may not be an isolated um, mix of circumstances, how we respond to it through our public policy choices can greatly impact our ability to support people through this economic period and to uh, limit suffering, yes. um, encourage stability. So I, I think you're actually kind of leading me into what I wanted to ask you next, which is that um, we hear a lot as anti-poverty advocates. Of course, this, this just boils my blood in a way I can't really articulate, mm-hmm. and I bet you'll do a much better job of it. But when I hear the suggestions that basic income supports for people with low incomes, um, like the monthly expanded, actually, these are this, these payments were not only for people with low incomes; these were for. Um, low to middle income families, almost every family with modest incomes and kids in our country received for a glorious six months of 2021 expanded monthly child tax credit payments that helped them. They widely reported to through the Census Bureau's household pulse surveys that they were spending that money on food, yeah. on clothing, on utilities, mm-hmm. on rent and mortgage, on just basic expenses mm-hmm. to um, survive and try to thrive. Yeah. And so we hear suggestions that investments like that in our families who are raising kids in this moment um, are responsible for the inflationary pain that you know we're, we're all feeling now. What is, the, you know, how do you feel about that as an economist? Is that an accurate representation? You know, uh, you often hear economic analysts and and, uh, economists say when they talk about these things, say that, you know, this is just simple economics. The truth is, this is just simple-minded economics. Um, There's nothing simple about inflation, 
and the idea that you can tie it down to one factor is just is it's unscientific to be to be sure but specifically this idea that stimulus checks and and other forms of direct assistance were the drivers of inflation it's it's an absolutely uh, ridiculous idea uh, we can approach it from many different ways um, for one if you look at the um, the disposable household income so the amount of money people have to spend uh, sure there is a, a little bit of a peak that happens after the stimulus plans like people are actually able to pay for basic necessities you know they're able to uh, make sure that their kids are well fed for example make sure that you know they have the clothes and stuff that they need personally as a father of two I also uh, experienced a situation of like wow you know I'm not I can you know there's some things that we've been putting off and you know we're I, I we're in a good situation but still you know tight in some places and all of a sudden we're like okay we can do that thing that we've been needing to do for a long time and believe me it wasn't buying you know an xbox or something it was you know buying some you know clothes that fit my son better or something mm-hmm. like that mm-hmm. um all that extra money um that the households had uh thanks to the stimulus package has disappeared you look at the peak, you look at the graph of disposable household income, it peaks after the stimulus checks, and then it drops like a rock. People do not have, people have less disposable income now than they did before the pandemic. They're in a worse situation than they were before. On the other hand, household um, credit card debt is, you know, climbing, climbing like, uh, you know, like there's no tomorrow. And um, and the fact of the matter is at this point, any, any amount of generosity that uh, working class people received has with it has disappeared on the other hand all that money that the financial and corporate sector received so all that money that people spent in those days after the uh, after the lockdowns went away we can if we look at the national accounts the national um, product accounts from the Bureau of Economic Analysis you can um, you can see what portion of that went where um, there's a, a study by the Economic Policy Institute that shows that 54% of additional costs of the increase in cost of goods can be attributed to corporate profits. Um, so what that means is that, sure, people had a little bit of extra money for a little bit of time, uh, but that they've spent it all and uh, it is not coming back into the economy. It's not recycling in the economy. It's actually sitting nice, comfy, uh, you know, pockets in Manhattan and, you know, other uh, rich places in this country. Um, on the other hand, these kinds of these kinds of assistance payments actually um, were a relatively small package of what uh, the government did. So there was about four trillion dollars in these kinds of payments. Actually, not all of that went to uh, low income households or, or you know, uh, in the meantime, there was uh, a lot of people forget, but March 2020, there was, um, you know, the bank, the stock market kind of tanked. And uh, the response from the federal government was to engage in quantitative easing, which is a fancy way of saying, um, you know, holding the ship afloat, uh, buying back bonds, treasury bonds, stocks, um, all kinds of different uh, financial implements that allowed there to be more money in the market. Um, their their balance sheet, the Fed's balance sheet right now, which uh, went up to nine trillion dollars. 
so this is more than twice the amount that uh, the CARES and ARPA bills accounted for. So what I'm trying to say was that with that is that the proximate cause of this um, of the generosity of of the stimulus plans is the question of how much of that was captured by the financial sector and the corporate sector. The the capture by corporate entities and financial entities of these of these uh, stimulus uh, funds, but also of the quantitative easing, means that they've had the chance to reinvest in themselves, buy back stocks, uh, you know, invest very heavily in the housing market. Uh, I, I've seen a Washington Post study recently that shows that um, about like I, I forget exactly what the figure, but I think it was like twenty four. Maybe 22% of houses, single-family homes here in, in Columbus are owned by uh, investors now uh, rather than families. And that's pushing up rent, which is a huge part of the, uh, of the inflation. Um, there are also many firms that have leases on, uh, on oil and, and uh, tar sands and, and you know, shale uh, places you know across the country where which is not something I necessarily think is the best outcome but if we wanted to truly wanted to reduce oil prices one of the things that you could do is you know create uh, short-term production um, and oil companies left and right are telling their managers not to drill to keep the uh, keep the oil in the ground so they can profit as much as possible so they can buy back stocks to increase the value pay back uh, some debts that they might have but just overall ensure that they are uh, doing well uh, increase you know maximizing their profit mm -hmm. um, so to summarize it's uh, the the generosity given to uh, working-class families is a small piece in the pie and it has already withered away. It, you know, we're talking 2020. What's driving the prices now has nothing to do with that. Yeah. You know, the there we have to look into deeper, more structural elements. We have to think about why we're unable to respond to a crisis like the pandemic. Um, why we're not able to increase production in oil, or why we're not able to provide housing for everybody, why we're not able to provide food for everybody. And this has to do with a, a deeper question of the way that we've chosen to do business over the past uh, 40 years. Mm. So, yeah, I think it's easy for those of us who don't have as much depth of understanding to think of this as well the pandemic was a huge i heard you use this term recently on an appearance on the state of ohio you talked about a shock to the system right so of course the coronavirus's impact on public health our response that happened globally really the response that we all had to take to protect lives in the short term um and then that evolved into also trying to stabilize our like our our healthcare providers and that system um all that evolved out of the immediate risk of the virus so you know we tend to attribute the situation we find ourselves in mid 2022 to covid mm. and our maybe ideological disagreements around what the government did or didn't do mm. um in that had an economic effect 
um, and whether or not that was, you know, so a lot of political ideology wrapped up in all of that. But what you're saying is, is that for decades we've been experiencing shocks to the system, so to speak, mm-hmm. that have ill-equipped us to respond to a crisis like that and that we're ill-equipped to come out of a crisis like we've been in and continue to be in um, because of those factors so yeah but i think what's what's important is it's not just that shocks have ill-equipped us it's the way that we've responded to shocks in the past has ill-equipped us for for our capacity to respond to previous shocks because what we've done in the past uh, time and time again is to ensure that uh, investors and, and corporate owners are the ones who come out uh, with you know their with everything uh, taken care of, mm-hmm. right? So what that has taught that sector of the economy is that the government will be there to make sure that they're okay. Too big to fail. Too big to fail. Yeah. And you know we've said this over and over again since two thousand eight, but this is this is uh, the true reason why we're unable to respond to uh, the current crisis isn't because it was completely unforeseeable. Sure, nobody realized that the pandemic was gonna be what it was, but people knew that this was, in fact, uh, people were talking very specifically about infectious diseases and lung um, respiratory diseases as a possible global shock kind of situation. Like it wasn't completely unknown. Maybe maybe it was hard to foresee, but it wasn't a complete impossibility. And, and mind you, uh, anybody who is um, worth a dime in, in business knows that you have to be able to deal with shocks. You have to know what you're going to do, either have uh, extra stocks, extra you know, storage facilities or plan Bs, you know, some kind of something to respond to a shock because the shocks happen all the time. Like, sure, this was a globalized shock like none other, but shocks happen all the time. So you have to have some capacity to respond to mm-hmm. it. Now, what I'm saying is that what we should understand is that we weren't able to respond to this shock, not because it was completely unforeseeable, but because the business decisions that we've been making in the past, not we, not you and I, obviously, a very small portion of this country, the business decisions that corporate owners have been making in recent decades have been uh, all about understanding that the government will step in if they fail and that and so they have to take so that they're willing to take as many as much risks as possible um, and to reduce their investment in things like physical capital physical capital stock like reduce their investment in um, storage in you know uh, plan B's basically reduce Mm -hmm. their their investment in in production here at home mm-hmm. uh, because they've been looking for the uh, the, the cheapest uh, and least uh, least committed way of producing and getting things where they go. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, the way that our economy is structured, it encourages, and the way that you know people what people have learned in the past, it encourages people to um, act as if every act as if every economic sector should be treated as kind of like the financial sector, you know, buy, high, buy low, sell high, uh, be as uh, diversified and uncommitted as possible, and all these kinds of things. But the fact of the matter is that basic things like the needs of like life, you know, the things that we need to like live life and happily and full require commitment require investment, require physical capital, require infrastructure, require all these kinds of things that aren't the most profitable mm-hmm. for corporations. Mm-hmm. Um, 
For example, in the oil sector, uh, part of the reason why we aren't capable of producing the, the oil, the gas that we need, is because the oil sector has become more and more unwilling to respond to price. So price goes up, but they don't invest in more production. Um, and uh, they have no reason to because they're going to make profit all, all, from what they're producing already. And they see the volatility of the market as their main concern. So if prices go down in the future, like they did in 2014, 2015, uh, then they have then they might lose if they invest in in actual physical capital stock, actual capacity to produce oil. Mm-hmm. So what what's the answer? Well, perhaps perhaps we shouldn't be. Uh, if if the main issue is that you can't provide stable profits from that kind of thing, then perhaps it shouldn't be private profits that are leading the decisions, mm-hmm. right? It should be national concern. Mm-hmm. And actually, in the question of oil production, considering that we're in amidst the climate crisis, um, I think that nobody should be profiting from, you know, further increasing mm-hmm. our uh, our uh, carbon monoxide, uh, carbon dioxide levels. Mm-hmm. You know? But um, there needs to be considerable change in, in our kind of institutional framing to approach these things in a systematic way uh, rather than just these kinds of blunt instrument responses like the Fed is proposing. Yeah, when I hear the the kind of high-level talking points, you know, from, from the Fed about how what we will have to see in order to... Uh, you know, drive down inflation is that we will ha- likely see unemployment tick up, right? You like That's we right. hear these talking points in, in the headlines, and it it seems almost like a disservice, I, I think, to um, households who are eager to, I, I think, understand the implications of a lot more of these policies policy decisions for them. We like need to tear back the layers so that we have a better shared understanding to your point of all of the um, all of the levers and decisions that are allowed to happen at different tables that are ultimately taking power away from yeah. people all over the country. Yeah, like let there be no confusion when they're talking about in, uh, increasing interest rates and these kinds of actions what they are talking about is basically uh, undermining the capacity of workers and laborers to vie for their own interests. Uh, so what they're doing is, sure, there's kind of like a, a what they call like a hot economy, like there's like there's too much demand, too little supply, right? And they're saying, okay, well, if we cool it down by forcing the workers out of, out of work, basically, the, the problem with these kinds of increasing interest rates is that they come, eventually they trickle down to the workers, something that actually does trickle down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, jobs jobs are lost, uh, people lose um, their livelihoods and so on. Yeah. So this is like, you know, it seems very like abstract and cold-hearted, but you know, when you, when you actually look at what it means, it means uh, people's lives and livelihoods. And um, it doesn't address the core of the issue. It doesn't address the fact that we have uh, overly financialized economy we it doesn't address the fact that corporations are responding to incentive structures to um, that that uh, uh, ensure that they don't they externalize their risks like they don't internalize the cost of risk taking mm-hmm. they just assume that it's going to be taken care of by the government 
um, and it doesn't uh, it doesn't address the fact that we need to um, respond to incentive to incentives other than profit making yes. to ensure that people can live. Yes. Um, yeah, we can have debates all we want about luxury goods, but I would like to live in a country where people being able to afford the food and the housing that they need is not a, a up for debate, that that is a shared value and that we should um, make our economics work accordingly. Uh, yeah. So we've touched a little bit on a little bit of these topics like, for example, energy diversification. Um antitrust regulation, mm. certainly revenue policy. So those are things that maybe, again, we as first and foremost hunger relief providers who are worried about just feeding the line um, each day don't always take a few steps back and pay close attention to. But do you think you could help us put into context how an Ohio family that's at risk of food insecurity that is right now you know, barely making it paycheck to paycheck. We'll be back in a food pantry line if if a kid is sick for a couple of days and some wages are lost. You know, how do these seemingly unrelated policies impact them? Why should we as food security advocates and people impacted by food insecurity care about them? Right. So as we were saying before, uh, there's a misconception that in this in this society it's existed here for a couple a few decades at least um, uh, by which in which we we believe that we can solve these kinds of problems that we're facing today by tinkering with um, with the market basically by kind of addressing the uh, supply of money by increasing the cost of lending all these kinds of little things um, the problem is that the profit incentive is just that. It's an incentive. It's a focus on profit. It's a focus on um, making as much money for a small amount of people as possible. So one of the big things is that we need to we need to be able to see beyond that. And the only way to see beyond that is by having an ambitious, um, visionary stance about what society and the state can do for its people. Um, we need to believe that we can, uh, and because we can do it, we need to believe that we can address climate change by uh, diversifying our energy, for example, as you were saying, uh, our energy sources, but also by taking out, uh, not waiting around until the, uh, the, the corporations think that it's profitable for them to do so. Um, and if they're not willing to step up for that profit, then let that profit be, um, be captured by society itself. We have this uh, this long-standing uh, kind of knee-jerk reaction to the question of um, of uh, state action in uh, in in different economic sectors. A lot of it is kind of left over from this red scare stuff from the mid twentieth century. The fact of the matter is, like, yes, you can do this in a wrong way, or you could do this in a right way. It's just a matter of how you set up the institutions. Same thing with uh, with antitrust. Um, we have a situation now where we've allowed corporations to grow larger and larger, especially if they do it in a particular way, uh, which you know we don't have to get into the details, but it's not a surprise. It should be a surprise to nobody that Amazon, for example, is as big as it is uh, because of the way it does its business. Um, 
the fact of the matter is that when you when you have a corporation that's very large, they have uh, a lot of influence on price. They have a lot of influence on policy. They have influence that exceeds the market, and we can't uh, continue to believe that we're going to address them by tinkering with market tools. Uh, and so, part of the part of the question is how we um, how we ensured that the we have the resources to respond to this and how we ensure that we can be as ambitious as possible and i think here is where we need um we need to address our revenue situation we have a tax situation here in ohio where uh, a long line of corporate politicians have led us to lower and flatter tax rates uh, which is another way of saying let us tax the poor more than the rich um, and poor and middle and middle incomes uh, and we need to flip that around we need to actually tax people according to their con- according to what they've received from society if you've been benefited by society because you are you know wealthy uh, wealthy person here then you know your contributions should reflect that uh, for example a- another thing that we should be considering is how what are the factors what are the different tools that we can use to ensure that people can um, feed themselves and their kids and their families. Uh, what are the the institutions that we can build to ensure that people can work if they want to work, take care of their families if they want to take care of their families? Um, what are the things that we can do to ensure that people are thriving in Ohio, mm-hmm. uh, across Ohio, from rural Ohio to urban Ohio, and um, and also how people can get the health care that they need mm-hmm. uh, coming out of such a uh, terrible situation, which you know, it's easy to just talk about these like inflation questions and stimulus and quantitative easing and all, but we have to remember that a million people passed, and it's absolutely, it's uh, it was a tragic situation, and it, it should inspire us to be more ambitious, ambitious and visionary than we've ever been. Absolutely, we had we achieved for a brief moment of time. It felt like some collective public awareness of some of the failures of. Um, like our family supporting policies, we had a temporary paid sick leave policy. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> if we all recall that, that went away. Um, just as one one of many examples. So, um, definitely, uh, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking about how we often talk in our world about, um, again, how food security includes access, and how there are many places that are food deserts mm. or sometimes we talk about healthy food deserts or some some folks use the word food swamps where the only um, the profit again the profit that's available in feeding people um, is very slim mm. there's very little. okay so it's very very slim and, and challenging for local and regional growers and farmers and producers mm-hmm. to stay solvent um, given all of the external factors that they're coping with rising volatility and climate (laughs) being one of many um, increased input costs Mm -hmm. Um, and then of course that hits the retailers as well so we know that um, if you're a, a retail grocer in a an upper middle class community, your profit margins are happening with the luxury items. Mm. You know, the, mm. the folks are shopping for their produce and their dairy, but where you're making your profit is in the um, the bag of 
um, luxury cookies that they're bringing home that week or they're trying out this new granola that they want on their yogurt and that's where maybe a little bit of the profit is is coming in but there's very little driver there so that in lower income communities where there is less money available to afford those luxury goods at the grocery store that might um, drive a little bit of that profit Mm -hmm. and there's only the ability to afford the cheapest foods Mm -hmm. um, where there's not a lot of margins then we see for-profit retailers pull out of those communities because they're operating in the red in those communities and we see small local farmers struggling to stay solvent because they don't again so it it begs the question of how well our for-profit food system is serving people when you know access to food is has to be the basic most fundamental right um that's absolutely and and we have this um yeah that's like a very clear a clear factor of how uh there's we need some kind of response to that and the profit the profit incentive is never going to be sufficient You'd have to, unless you do something very targeted and uh, focused on those communities and and the people who live there and all these kinds of things. And the the, the funny thing is, you know, I'm I'm currently writing a report on uh, some of the small business um, incentives that we have here in Ohio. For example, the business income deduction, which was sold to Ohio as a small business uh, incentive. And when you start looking at the details, you see how whenever we create these t- types of incentives it actually ends up benefiting the wealthy more than the than working class mm-hmm. Ohioans so the business income deduction for example it's just a, a a giveaway to people who are able to maneuver their income into a particular legal form if you have the accountants if you have the wherewithal to uh, to find the loophole basically then um, then you're able to manipulate your income that might otherwise be um, that you might always might otherwise have to contribute taxes from into a, a form that gives you basically no taxes at all up mm-hmm. to two hundred fifty thousand dollars. So, you know, when when people so it's like yes, absolutely, we need to find new uh, institutional strategies to ensure that there's food for everyone. That seems it's you know we're in the twenty first century and we're saying that still it's a little bit ridiculous. But what people what people point to in these situations is like oh small businesses so easy and then they create these small businesses incentives that um actually just benefit you know lawyers and lobbyists and uh, people with well-paid accountants um so sure we need perhaps a small business kind of situation would help in this situation but you know how do we uh what are the institutional what is the institutional support that ensures that uh, a small business in a in a low income community, which for all the reasons that you described, isn't really able to make a profit, um, at least not like Kroger. Uh, what ensures that um, that they'll be able to stay afloat? And again, here another thing to consider is how do we um, how do we kind of get beyond just the the business the business mindset in mm-hmm. the sense of like how do we create social institutions that are responding to the needs of a community um, and perhaps how do we you know incentivize uh, collective cooperative uh, institutions in a community that can like bring food to a community not necessarily profit driven but also not necessarily competing against the big food suppliers mm-hmm. uh, the other thing I was going to say is that you know we don't in- we incentivize uh, accounting acrobatics and we incentivize sugar and corn and you know basically like cheap 
non-nutritious uh, ways of getting calories. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm so. sure we'll be talking a lot more about that going into that we are already um, seeing that in Farm Bill discussions for mm-hmm. sure. So that will be that will be something we certainly dive into more in this space and in other spaces. So um, I look forward to that and look forward to reading your newest report and just want to thank you so much for your time with us today, for sharing your wisdom and your thoughts and um, maybe we'll have you back sometime if you're willing. Yeah. <laughs> so I'd thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. A recent blog by Josh Bivens, director of research at the Economic Policy Institute, summarized much of what Guiche and I talked about this way. The price of just about everything in the U.S. economy can be broken down into the three main components of cost. These include labor costs, non-labor inputs, and the markup of profits over the first two components. Since the trough of the COVID-19 recession in the second quarter of 2020, overall prices in the non-financial corporate sector, which are those companies that produce goods and services, have risen at an annualized rate of 6.1%, a pronounced acceleration over the 1.8% price growth that characterized the pre-pandemic business cycle stretching back to 2007. Strikingly, over half of this increase, 53.9%, can be attributed to fatter profit margins, with labor costs contributing less than 8% of this increase. This is not normal. From 1979 to 2019, profits only contributed about 11% to price growth and labor costs over 60%. Non-labor inputs, a decent indicator for supply chain snarls, are also driving up prices more than usual in the current economic recovery. What does the abnormally high contribution of profits to price growth mean for how policymakers should respond to the recent outbreak of inflation? The already excessive power of corporations has been channeled into raising prices rather than the more traditional form it has taken in recent decades, suppressing wages. Thanks again to Guiche for his time and to all of you for listening. Hit the subscribe button so you don't miss out on future episodes, and we'll talk to you next time.